You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. What does Beijing want to know about U.S. presidential campaigns? A redacted version of the CIA's inquiry into the WikiLeaks Vault 7 material is out. That DDoS attack you read about on Twitter never happened. Former eBay employees face federal charges of conspiracy to commit cyberstalking and witness tampering. Ben Yellen explains a judge refusing to sign off on a potential Facebook facial recognition settlement. Our guest is Randy Vanderhoof from the Secure Technology Alliance on Mobile Drivers Licenses. And where would you store niche dating app material? In a misconfigured AWS S3 bucket. Where else? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 16th, 2020. We've got two stories of espionage today. In the first, the Voice of America reports that Chinese intelligence services are collecting against the U.S. presidential campaign of presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden. What are they after? Position papers, apparently. The campaign appears not to have been compromised, and the operation appears to be part of a long-standing effort aimed at developing a picture of U.S. presidential candidates' attitudes and likely policies toward the People's Republic. Google's threat analysis group, cited by The Voice of America, has been tracking the espionage for weeks. FireEye attributes the effort to APT-31, also known as Hurricane Panda or Stone Panda. The other story involves the partial declassification of the October 2017 report by the CIA's WikiLeaks Task Force that was formed to investigate how the leak site came to obtain the material it published as Vault 7. According to the Washington Post, the heavily redacted report found that the CIA was focused on developing offensive cyber tools but that it neglected basic security measures and sound practice. The report's provenance is interesting. It came to the post from Senator Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, who received it in his capacity as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. The senator got it from the Justice Department, which has it because it figures into the trial of Joshua Schultz, who's been charged with passing the Vault 7 material to WikiLeaks. Mr. Schultz's attorneys claim that the report shows that the CIA's security was, in this respect, so slipshod that any one of hundreds of people could have given Vault 7 to Mr. Assange's organization. The CIA has said that it does indeed take network security seriously, but beyond that had little to say. A former intelligence official speaking anonymously told the Post that he disagreed with the conclusion that the CIA's enterprise systems were carelessly secured, that, to the contrary, Langley had secured its enterprise systems to a gold standard. But the enterprise systems and the mission systems were two separate things, and while security was emphasized, the source told the Post that the operators who ran the mission network thought there was better auditing, more insight into the network than in fact there was. 
there was a mismatch of expectations between the operators and those who administered and maintained the network. Did you hear that the U.S. was under a major DDoS attack? It's been all over Twitter, you know. Anonymous, with its cosplayer's customary overstatement, has claimed that the United States is under crippling distributed denial-of-service attack, and a lot of others have been tweeting, retweeting, and otherwise sharing their thoughts on the matter. And, as is usually the case, those thoughts run along the lines of, well, the Martians have landed and the man is out to get you. But as Cloudflare and others have pointed out, it's not true. There was no DDoS. Sure, T-Mobile had a rocky upgrade yesterday that impeded calls and texts, although CNET says data for the most part continued to flow, albeit with certain outages reported. The people tweeting as anonymous didn't claim the DDoS for themselves, saying instead that it was probably China because of stuff going on around the Korean demilitarized zone. The attack map iCandy tweeted in the anarchist collective's non-name appears to put the center of the campaign somewhere between Omaha and Des Moines, which could maybe be why we missed it here in Baltimore, but we think Forbes, TechCrunch, and Computing have it right. There was no DDoS. And those maps with all the lines arcing across the globe? Don't take them too seriously. Imagine not having to carry a wallet and instead having all of your payment information, medical insurance cards, and even your driver's license stored on your mobile device. Convenient, yes. Secure? Possibly, depending on how it's implemented, and as they say, the devil is in the details. Several U.S. states are underway with plans to make mobile versions of driver's licenses available to their citizens who prefer them. Randy Vanderhoof is executive director of the Secure Technology Alliance, and he offers these insights. Most people in the U.S. over the age of 18 get a driver's license from their state primarily to uh, prove their privilege to drive. But most people don't use that driver's license that often for that purpose, but instead use the driver's license as a form of identity so that people can uh, prove their age if they're entering an age-restricted establishment or prove their address or their identity if they're opening a bank account or cashing a check or accessing a, a secure facility. Having a mobile version of this identity offers a lot more uh, convenience as well as security as well as uh, functionality because uh, the digital version of that uh, physical driver's license can be uh, transmitted electronically to someone who can then read that information and authenticate it and then have a, an electronic record of uh, the transaction, which is something that uh, is not commonly available by just presenting the physical driver's license. Now, in this scenario, how does uh, a mobile driver's license uh, verify that I'm who I say I am? So in the mobile version, there would be a digital image of the person so that you can match the, the uh, driver's license credential with the person that's presenting it. And then there could be a set of options that the person holding the phone would be able to select as to what other information do you want shared and then you could bring up your um, age eligibility or you could bring up your your address if that was um, what uh, was required. And then the establishment that's proving 
by identity can read that information electronically. And so there's a, a higher level of trust because the information that's uh, shared electronically can be, um, can be digitally secured. And then there's an auto trail or a record that uh, the establishment then has. So if there was a question after the fact, whether or not that uh, establishment actually checked for my identity, they can go back to their electronic record and, and show the information that they got at the point of uh, when that digital driver's license was presented. That's Randy Vanderhoof from the Secure Technology Alliance. The U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts has charged six former eBay employees with conspiracy to commit cyber-stalking and conspiracy to tamper with witnesses in an unusually nasty and dim-witted case of cyber-stalking. They are alleged to have harassed and doxed a Natick, Massachusetts couple who ran an e-commerce blog and newsletter, E-Commerce Bytes, that sometimes posted critical reviews of eBay. The harassment included anonymous and disturbing deliveries, a bloody pig mask, a book on mourning a spouse's death, live cockroaches, nasty pornography apparently intentionally misdelivered to a neighbor's house, a fetal pig, and so on. It even involved physical visits to the victim's home, disrupted by the Natick police who subsequently asked eBay what was going on. The six defendants, all of whom eBay fired last September after an internal investigation prompted by the Natick PD, included some senior and middle managers. The U.S. Attorney's Office says the defendants were, until eBay parted ways with them, the Senior Director of Safety and Security, the Director of Global Resiliency, Senior Manager of Global Intelligence, the Manager of eBay's Global Intelligence Center, a contractor who worked as an intelligence analyst in the GIC, a Senior Manager of Special Operations for eBay's Global Security Team. It's a very strange story in which a well-resourced Fortune 500 company decided to go after two small-town online journalists with strong-arm tactics out of a cheap detective novel or a bad TV crime show. In what passed for cunning among the planners, they intended to escalate the pressure, then send one of their number to visit the victims in Natick, appearing as an eBay hero, sympathetically prepared to help them get out from under all the harassment. This would generate goodwill toward eBay and favorable stories on the victim's blog. So a win-win, right? Well, no. But see what we mean about a lousy script? And finally, Carlos Danger, call your office. VPN Mentor is reporting that researchers discovered that hundreds of thousands of users of niche dating and hookup apps had their personal information exposed. 20,439,462 files, totaling 845 gigabytes, and including such photos, many of them described as graphic and explicit, screenshots of private chats and financial transactions, some audio, and a bit of personally identifiable information. The apps appear to have shared a developer. More importantly, they shared an AWS S3 bucket, and guess what? That bucket was exposed to the Internet. If we thought any of you needed it, we'd close with a meditation on Kant's transcendental principle of publicity as one formulation of the categorical imperative. But in case any of your friends ask you, here's a quick gloss. If you don't want that stuff to turn up on the pages of Wired, don't put it online.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. He is also my co-host on the Caveat podcast. Uh, Ben, always great to have you back. Uh, Interesting story from uh, Courthouse News Service, and it's titled, Judge Won't Sign Off on $550 Million Facebook Facial Data Settlement. Uh, What's going on here? So this has been a case that's been tied up in our court system for about five years now. A group of plaintiffs initiated a class action suit under Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act of 2008. Um, Yes, federal courts can hear cases on state laws for all you civil procedure nerds out there. Um, (laughs) And the case claims that Facebook started mapping users' faces for its photo tag function without properly notifying the users. Uh, So recently, Facebook and the class of plaintiffs came to a settlement for $550 million, which is below, you know, for each uh, plaintiff, that's below what one would get for a single violation if you read the uh, Illinois statute literally. And so the judge in this case, a federal district court judge, is questioning the terms of the settlement, which is very unusual. Judges are usually very deferential to parties who decide to settle. Um, You know, it makes their lives easier. It keeps cases out of court. So even if they have to sign off on a settlement, you know, they'll they'll usually trust whatever agreement the parties have come to. In this case, the district court judge is saying, in his opinion, 
these penalties, uh, the penalty that Facebook is going to pay to these plaintiffs is just simply not large enough. Mm. Uh, The statute requires far greater penalties, and it's not going to be enough of a disincentive for Facebook to change its behavior and give proper warning before it engages in things like mapping uh, users' faces. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think Facebook is probably... Freaking out right now. They they thought they had this case settled. <laughs> you know, they came to an agreement with this class of plaintiffs, and now the case is uh, reopened, and the judge is asking each party for uh, additional information. Uh, so um, the case has kind of been resurrected, um, and it'll be interesting to see what the future proceedings hold. Yeah, I mean, looking at some of the details here, uh, that Illinois statute apparently uses a benchmark of five thousand dollars per violation. And uh, according to this article, in the, the settlement, everyone would receive between 150 to $300, which, uh, if you do the math, turns out to about 1.25% of, of the maximum that people could get. Uh, and the judge is saying that essentially a 98.75% discount off of the, the recommended violation isn't going to cut it. Yeah, it's rare that you see 98.75% discounts out there. You know, even <laughs> even in the age of of Groupon, I you rarely see, you know, 98% off. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty extreme. Um there are a couple of things that are are worth noting about that. One mm-hmm. is it's very likely that the plaintiffs thought this litigation is going to be so costly, could go on for such a long time, it might be in our best interest to just cut it off now, take the settlement that we can get and move on. And both parties also said in some of their filings that they expected a judge, you know, if there was a civil judgment for this class of plaintiffs, they'd expect that uh, the amount of, of damages owed would be reduced anyway. So we might as well keep this case out of court. What hmm. this judge is saying is that's not persuasive because even if a uh, judge or jury were to reduce uh, the amount of damages, it's very unlikely that they would reduce them by a number as drastic as 98%. Mm. Um, And, you know, I I think he certainly has uh, a point there. And he also, you know, another thing this judge said is Facebook still hasn't explained how um, this problem is going to be dealt with going forward. How is Facebook going to handle class members' facial geometry data after the settlement is finalized? Uh. Um, and so the judge still wants, you know, some clear answers on that. So I think the judge is saying to both parties, um, this this does not look like a fair and equitable agreement right now. This wow. does not look like a problem that's going to be solved. So that's why he's taking this this rather rare step of opening the case up. And so what happens now? Do both both groups go back to the to the drawing board? Where where does it go? Yeah, so the judge has ordered attorneys for each party to address the concerns laid out uh in the judge's memo. Uh and the judge basically said I'm not signing off on a settlement. Uh it's very possible if you know, you the parties don't adequately address my concerns that we're going to actually have a civil jury trial. And in that case, Facebook is most likely going to owe a heck of a lot more than 1.25% of uh, the potential damages. You know, I think it's possible that the plaintiffs will use this as uh, this judge's uh, memo as leverage and say, all right, the judge thought 500 million was too small. Why don't let, let's go, you know, 2 billion, 3 billion. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty soon we're talking about real money. Real right? money, exactly. And then, you know, maybe the judge will sign off on that, but none of us have to go to court and go through the uh, very difficult process of a long civil jury trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's, we, we could still very well see a settlement in this case. It's just going right. to be different than the settlement that has already been agreed upon by the two parties. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting indeed. All right. Well, Ben Yellen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.